You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom a bit of a long intro clip, but it had to be done. I mean, what the Ned Betty character pontificates to the Peter Finch character in Network is so damn true. The movie came out decades ago. And it's so much worse now, as you can add Silicon Valley and tech companies to the list of magician states that control the planet, pushing us all to that eventual climax where humanity will be fully lobotomized, blissful in ignorance, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized. All boredom amused. Just a bored collective serving the corporation that extends out into space to melt into the corporation of the Demiurge. One business and one satanic feast for the Archons. This is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. All individuality will cease to exist. Remember, it was Jung who said that the opposite of good isn't evil, but power. That's the ultimate goal of the alien mind parasites. Complete power. 
all individuality will cease to exist. This business plan to forever ensnare consciousness in the mind-forged manacles of William Blake is written in both the atoms and the stars. It's closer than ever, unless we of the broken places, we high priests and priestesses of Sophia and Hermes, do something about it. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. As Whitley Strieber said in his essay, The Danger of Being Right, it's time for us to wake up and face the truth that we are a captive species on a prison planet. But the fact that we are so close to understanding the science of our imprisonment means that we are also just beginning to touch the key that locks the door. And if we are strong, if we can defy and defeat the sinister forces that rule us now, we have a chance at last to unlock this place and do what we are able to do, that we are richly capable of doing, that those who love us, and they are out there too, have hoped and sought that we should do from time immemorial. Satellite's been up there for thousands of years. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. The values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. Thanks for that quote, Stuart. And thanks to you who have arrived at Aeon Bite to unionize against the endgame of the demiurgist predatory spiritual and crony capitalism here in the desert of the real. We stop his business plan by becoming more conscious, more alive, while civilization embraces ignorance and death. We stop it by choosing ecstasy over entertainment, by writing our own gospel and living our own myth, by helping the least of our brothers. We stop it by creating better than the Creator Gods and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. You were made for these Gnostic times, this age of Hermes, this Philip K. Dick world. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. Welcome to defeating the corporation. No! We'll never defeat the corporation! They've won! There is one way, Adzin. You can shoot yourself. If it's the only way, I must. In this eternal now, we host someone who understands how to defeat the corporation. Even if the technocrats add transhumanism, AI, and various false flags to their demonic arsenal. Our astral guest knows that, as the Gnostics contended, 
It means looking back in time for the wisdom of the ages and the lost wisdom of ancient spiritual mercenaries. That is Anthony Garcia, who materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah. Yes, let us get on a TARDIS without the last Doctor Who, who sucks, and travel back to find the warnings, spiritual tech, and philosophical Red Bull of the Qumran community, the Essenes, and the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. You really would let me kill you, wouldn't you, you sick fuck? You ever heard of the Masada? For two years, 900 Jews held their own against 15,000 Roman soldiers. They chose death before enslavement. And the Romans? Where are they now? You're looking at them, asshole. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun. But it is. It just is. I know. I know. It may seem all dark and hopeless. And the Gnostic message may seem like a celestial Gen X grunge howl. But it's only until you fully accept there is a problem that you can do something about it. Rock bottom is reached when you stop fucking digging. The best news an alcoholic receives is when he or she realizes that they are an alcoholic and can now deal with the wreckage of their life. In truth, we're all alcoholics in the black iron prison, programmed to become addicted to some material delight, always chasing for the next dopamine rush thing, enrolled in a soul suicide by installments in each life we manifest in. Slaves with white collars, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Stop wondering about the New World Order. When it already happened, when the Archons decided to wipe out the dinosaurs and create the ultimate vessel to trap the sparks of Sophia. The perfect slave who loves the cell bars. Us monkeys. Or whatever myth stew works for you. We're all monkeys. Ah, oh, Henry, why don't you wake up? Darwin was wrong. Man's still an ape. Again, this is all positive if you accept the reality of the prison planet Whitley mentioned and go for the keys, the keys of Gnosis Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Thomas. As Beth Martin said, when you face the horror of existence, you don't lose your innocence, you only lose your ignorance. Your innocence is eternal, that part of you composed of endless imagination, wonder and inventiveness. The Gnostics contended that the God above God was but a supreme mind, forever speculating, contemplating, and envisioning all that was good and useful, 
a sharp contrast to the mechanistic, profit-driven mind of Yaldi Baldi. Somebody pushes me, I push back, so I brought him down here. Users wrote us. The user even wrote you. No one user wrote me. I'm worth millions of their man years. As David Brackey wrote in The Gnostics, the human mind is a kind of miniature representation of the aeons that emanate from the ultimate God. For this reason, the Gnostic could also contemplate God by contemplating his or her own intellect. You have the mind of the ultimate God, the news, and you have so much potential. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Don't let any corporation fool you as it has with so many billions of meat sacks and internet ass clenchers. You've gone through so much. Felt the tears of Sophia on your face as you stared at the sky and its black hole sun. Now you are ready to stop the ultimate quarterly report of the Demiurgis Corporation. You're ready. You're awake. You're so beautiful. I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. As Jung said, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. And as David Holler said in Legion, the end is here. The beginning is here. The end? What it all means is not for us to know. It is for history to decide. All we can do is play the part as written. All we can know is ourselves. Lastly, as David Graeber said, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. You decide what is real and what is not. You. Your will. Led us to a spectacular interview with Anthony Garcia. Oh, and as a bonus, I'll provide our interview with Marvin Vinning on his book, Jesus the Wicked Priest, where he makes the case that Jesus was a rebel Essene. A perfect companion to the show, with insights galore on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes, and the birth of Christianity. Why, oh why, didn't I take the blue pill? This is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Anthony Garcia, to discuss his book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah, and plenty of other sundries as well. Anthony, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, yourself in advance. I'm excited. Oh, we're excited too. I, I really enjoyed your book, and I know our audience will enjoy it too, all that you have to share with the world that needs to be sharing in these very high weirdness times. And as Anthony mentioned, we've got with us Van Sachi the Moondog. Vance, how are you doing? 
Oh, I'm fine. I'm really interested to hear about this connection between the Dead Sea Scrolls and artificial intelligence after having just struggled with artificial stupidity all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You deal with uh, this kind of stuff during your day job, huh? Oh, yeah. But it's the human stupidity that must worry you the most. Well, not too much human contact anymore. I'm just sitting here by myself, <laughs> cranking away. <laughs> in your own little world awesome awesome well anthony so the audience uh, can find or gain a, get a little perspective uh, tell us about your background and how you became a writer of these esoteric subjects it really started um my family belongs to a, a religious sect called Edmanos penitentes uh translated the brothers of penance uh, from northern New Mexico, and I grew up here in Colorado, but that was always uh, something as part of that I knew, and my parents specifically, my mother shared with me, and uh, specifically, uh, it revolves around uh, uh, music, the alabados, A-L-A-B-A-D-O-S, and I have a website that uh, relates to that, alabados.com, and in there uh, were uh, just songs of praise, you know, and uh, I wrote about that website. And um, what had happened was that in 2011, after doing a few years' work of uh, translation of different people's alabados, um, I was approached to do uh, a couple uh, translation of, a, of two Quavernos notebooks. And uh, the general asked me to translate and to, what's the word I want to use? Um, it's an appropriate word, it was decode one of the plays. And one book was a regular Alabados notebook, had about 10 songs in it. The second one was a play. Well, Admanos don't do plays. And I was well aware of that. And I saw that and I said, I looked up and I said, this is not an Alabados, <laughs> this is a play. They smiled at me and go, this is a play. And they explained to me, that uh, it was a, a, a play of cryptic origin concealing the Jewish history of the New Mexican Southern Colorado's Edmanos within this play. Yeah, I got a little giggle out of that. It's in my home at the table. I'm here right now talking. They, and uh, I'm still not certain what they really wanted. And uh, they, I was very lucky, fortunate they selected me. And they said, but you have to tell our history. Well, it always comes with a catch when somebody does that, if you can imagine, <laughs> yeah. right? So they were very serious about it. And I said, okay. And I, I understood their history and their family values and how that all worked. And I translated, and lo and behold, you know, I found uh, within this play 30 Hebrew words, and uh, excuse me, eight Hebrew words and about 30 what we call Ladino words, which are half uh, Spanish, half Hebrew. Well, that's not supposed to be in any written writing anywhere but it was in this play and that's really what started me and that's what I wrote my first book on called the portal of light and um you know I wrote that as a nonfiction, it's almost 300 pages and that's what started it wonderful and what was the name of the play was uh, that the exodus the, play well that is the Exodus play the book is called the portal of light but the play I named the, that was in the quaderno I called it the Exodus play because I thought, well, these people are again hiding and fleeing. So I called it the Exodus play. 
Very interesting. And for the audience that might not know, uh, a Ladino is a, what an, a, a Spanish Jewish uh, individual Correct. who has fled Spain or kicked out because of the Inquisition. And, and uh, is it the same as a, a Marano? That's uh, about ah, the same. You know right? your little history. Yes, that is. Marano yeah. means what? That means uh, pig. And, mm-hmm. and the reason they called them pigs is because they were so good at hiding. You couldn't differentiate between a Spanish Catholic and a Spanish Jew. Mm-hmm. So they got so upset, they started calling them Maranos or pigs because they couldn't couldn't differentiate. Yeah, same way in Portugal, where I'm from. My exactly. ancestors exactly. are actually Jewish, and then they converted. But yeah, there you go. You could not tell them apart except for whatever secrets my ancestors did. <laughs> there you go. So that's awesome. And then and where you live, there is a big Ladino community. There are in Denver, there are in, in the, the San Luis Valley, definitely northern New Mexico. Um, you know, when the they've actually followed what they call the moradas, which is little chapels. And they had chapels, you know, from Colorado, Nevada, California, uh, Arizona. So they actually at one time were prominent in a lot of different areas. Very cool. As you started following this play, how did you get interested in the Essenes or the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, obviously, that's the big topic. Here's what happened. I I wrote about all this, but there are two characters in the play I could not locate. Uh, one was Ed Edmontano, who was a time travel traveler, and the second was the Portal of Light. And then, uh, lo and behold, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came to Denver, I started doing my research on that. And those two characters were within the Book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. And they were right there. And I couldn't believe it. That's when I when I have those kind of instances, my hands go pumping up and down. I go, I found you. Because, you know, I looked all over for them. I couldn't find them. Wow. What are the two characters again? The, the Portal of Light. Ermitaño. Okay. Ermitaño and the Brother of Light. And the, uh, and the Portal of Light. Fascinating. Maybe for the audience... You could explain those who might not know or the elevator pitch. Uh, who exactly are the Essenes? And uh, of course, as some wonder, how do you connect these scenes to the Dead Sea Scrolls? The scenes are interesting because the word Essene is not mentioned in either by the Bible or the Torah. But they were critical importance in the first year BC because when the Romans are coming to con- conquer and basically burn and raise all the temples in Jerusalem, the the rabbis went out throughout the lands of Judea and collected all the very important scrolls. But they didn't know what to do with them. They knew they had to hide them or conceal them so the Romans would not get them because they were going to torch them. And the Essenes were a brotherhood, if you can imagine, are hippies, anti-materialism, anti-participation thing of religious organization. They're anti-temple. Uh, they didn't participate in anything. They liked it their own thing. And one thing they had in common with the hippies is that the oneness between spirituality and nature. And because they're that way, they, you know, didn't go to temple. They were historically Pharisees, but they studied on their own. And they were so good at it, they were writing scrolls what they call true Israel, their own their own sacred studies, uh, but pretty pretty much practicing what the uh, the uh, rabbis would do, but didn't include rabbis. And uh, there were two types of Essenes. 
they were they they lived one so they didn't belong to the temple and one example is they lived in Galilee and guess who was born in Galilee that's to yeah. Nazarene right mm-hmm. so uh the reason they're important is because Jesus was raised as in a scene and that's very important because when you understand that you know who he is and what he stood for and uh, his philosophies in life, they were definitely influenced as the Nassim. So uh, when people look back in society and they go, who's Jesus? They, they don't know who he is from age 30 when he started public speaking and public preaching. So prior to that, really, he wasn't Nassim. So that's the, so the, getting back to your question, there were two types of Essenes, one that lived in the rural areas. And the second area is that lived in what they call a fort called Masada, which is about 12 miles east of Jerusalem. And it was a fort. And that's where uh, the more organized, uh, steadfast, um, Essene Brotherhood can be fi- found. They call themselves Brothers of Light. Um, and uh, interesting, that's what the Manus Penitentes call themselves, Brother of Light, you know, 2,000 years later. So... Um, so they're very important to society and to uh, what's going to happen next. So that's who the scenes were. Interesting because so we can reconstruct it just uh, to make sure that you had these scenes, but you the scenes were the ones who lived in the, the Qumran community in the caves, again, away from society more or less. And then when the Romans came to eventually destroy the second temple, yes. uh, the Pharisees and others hid these very valuable scrolls and handed it off to the Essenes who hid them in Qumran and other places. Correct. And what's interesting, I know they wrote a ledger of where they put these tunnels and caves, and that has not been located. What hasn't been located? A ledger of where they hid the 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 scrolls in the caves. Oh, interesting! They, Very. They interesting. created that for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, go ahead, real quick. One thing I want to mention: the scenes are led by one person called the Teacher of Righteousness. Right. He's never been disclosed about who he is, but there was that leadership that did that. They also talked about a wicked priest. Do we know who the wicked priest might be, or is it still just all speculation, Anthony? Well, it's written within the scrolls, both of those those persons, but they're not identified. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's brought in a lot of speculation, and it, it, no, and you are right. Uh, we do have stories of. Uh, when the Romans came and attacked the second temple, they would get scrolls and wrap them around a priest and burn him on fire. They just didn't care. They were going to wipe out all this wisdom that was collected. So it was a good thing. And yeah, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, they had a a lot of press in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, because the church and everybody thought this would prove the biblical traditional story, but uh, that's not what we got, was it, Anthony? <laughs> sort of confounded uh, the powers that be. Well, what's interesting is that um, what has come out from these scrolls is that um, I link it to Jesus specifically because 
they do specific things that only Christians do. Um, the belief in heaven, afterlife, angels, spiritual angels, and spirituality. And um, I know you can ask me next about John the Baptist, but you know that w- that was their values, and John the Baptist was Jesus' first cousin. And so I think we have some very direct links about uh, who the Essenes were, who, who the Nazarene was, and, and it's, very, it's very, very, very important. Yeah, I mean, um, who mentions the Essenes tradition? We've got what Josephus, a few of the Church Fathers. Uh, yes. Who else talks about them? Again, there's not much out there. Not even, not even some of the historical figures of the first century, like. Phony the elder, the elders. They don't. They don't mention them at all. No. They've just been. Uh, they're just. They're. Uh, their esoteric thinking really uh, pushes them off, scares them off. So your group's thinking about the esoteric philosophies. You know, it's right here. Oh, that's for sure. And they also, I think it's uh, Philo talks about the Therapute. Do you think the scenes and the Therapute are one and the same? These healers, magic healers? Well, that's how they, uh, that, you know, that's exactly how uh, those young men were raised to think of themselves as healers. Mm-hmm. They actually used to call themselves physicians or doctors. Um, so there could be some linkage there. And what, uh, yeah, what were some of the rituals of these scenes? I think, uh, well, we could say baptism, but uh, I think the Jews practice that mikvah anyway. Uh, what were some of their, uh, yeah, their practices? I, th- I mean, your book obviously details a lot of them, which are fascinating, which we don't really see anywhere else in uh, Judaism, but uh, was what, dream interpretation, holistic therapy, astrology, all that? Anything I'm missing? No, you're you're right on right on board there. They would take one step back is the way they did it. I found it interesting. Imagine uh, first century where they're walking down around barefoot or with sandals and everything. Within the Masada, they had about th- thirteen cisterns, and the cisterns had steps going in and then out. Mm-hmm. And wow. every morning they would bathe in white clothes, and then and, and walk out the other stairwell out and that was the way they started their day some people you know were farmers gatherers took care of the the masada in terms of foods but other admanos studied the scripture and that's what i want to make very important uh when the copper scrolls were created um the longest one they found was about 27 foot made out of copper and imprinted wow 27 foot yeah, but that was the one where, you know, the, the, the study of the astrology and that philosophy and how they how they did that was just amazing. And, you know, while most of the world was, you know, riding on caves, these guys were riding on, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? They're just yeah. so advanced for their age. So it's not a wonder to me why the Pharisee leadership chose the Essenes to hide their material because they were actually ahead of, you know, of, of the Pharisees in a number of ways. So um, they just had some unique ways of doing these. Um, they studied at night under candle, um, usually in twos and threes, and um, took a long time to study. And, you know, they took their time and they just really 
just amazing that they studied the philosophy of, of the of the sacred books. They were just really into it. Yeah, indeed. And do you speculate what might be their influence? I mean, were they really an ancient Jewish society? Could they have been an influence of the Persian or the Sumerians or Greek mysticism influence? Or do you have, have you ever wondered about that, Anthony? Well, keep in mind that the the scenes originally were mystics. Mm-hmm. They studied the stars, and and. In fact, you know, the, the real, I'm going to say, astrological influence came from the Aramaic-speaking brothers. They came from Egypt. Mm-hmm. So studying uh, that kind of material there and bringing it forth. But what was important about the scenes was that uh, they were open to other philosophies and wisdom. So if a band came in, for example, from India, and they had music, because they always have music and guitar. The, the Indians were the ones who brought the guitar to the New World. If they bought music, if they bought philosophy, information on the stars, it was shared freely between each two. And that's the way it is, because once you start talking about astrology, you know, everybody comes on this same level. It, it's just the way it is. So the influences can come from from um, Samaritans. It can come from Egypt. It can come from India. And they were just open to that. Now, picture yourself as a young Jesus, and he hears all this stuff. And when he goes to preach, he remembers a lot of that stuff. The issue I'm having with the with the Christian books is they talk about him, you know, saying things in parables. Well, I know darn well he knew all about astrology and all these other things from these from these other teachers, but it's not shared. So they kind of ignore the Essenes, who they stood for and what they knew and and the wisdom they had. Yeah, that is true. I would certainly agree with that. And I think uh, I know another thing about the Essenes or the Qumran community, and this was something of reading the work of uh, Robert Eisenman and Richard Carrier, and the Essenes were very, uh, A, they were apocalyptic. They expected a a battle, a spiritual or end time battle, but they also, unlike regular Judaism or what became uh, uh, mainstream Judah, rabbinical tr- Judaism that thought there'd be a priest and a king, they really thought that the Messiah would come and he would be, you might say, a spiritual Messiah, a magical Messiah, uh, uh, for lack of better words, a supernatural Messiah, right? Are we talking the Pharisees? The scenes. The, the scenes. The scenes. Remember, they followed the 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 uh, the the constellation equator. And it takes about a year of human time to follow that to know when the new age is coming. So they at, at that time of year one, they knew that age was coming, and any time that happens, an important historical fi- figure appears. So they knew something big was on the horizon, they also knew that the Romans are coming to basically wipe them out. The scenes will always connect to the creator. It's very important. So they expected a child born Messiah to be born, to appear. On the other hand, the Pharisees wanted and expected an adult, 
an adult Messiah type to appear to fight the Romans. So um, in doing so, the young child was forthcoming and they knew that. And um, if I take you a step back, if you look at Judaic history, if you go to the age of Gemini, it was Abraham and Noah showed up. Age of Taurus was Moses. Age of Aries was Daniel. The age of Pisces is Jesus and Nazareth. And now in our current age of Aquarius is I'm the anointed one, who I think is going to be the Jewish Messiah who is going to be the anointed one. But what about timelines? I mean, traditional timeline, Anthony, you've got... Well, the Qumran community, the scenes are there, but then you have the birth of Jesus, then you have the execution of Jesus, and then it's another generation or so before the Roman Jewish war stars and the destruction of the temple, and of course the fall of Masada soon after. I mean, the scenes must have seen did they feel this was they must have seen like this is a complete failure. We just got destroyed by this evil empire. Well, they knew that um when the Romans approached them and started building their bridges to cross over into their forts, um, a new leadership, leadership came on board there and they separated the, the scenes that would fight versus the ones that were non-physical but that were, wouldn't fight. So, And when they did that, they realized they had a few fighters to take on the Roman army. And that's why they martyred. The 200 brothers martyred within the Masada. Mm-hmm. And when the when the Romans entered, finally went over the scale of the, the fort, they were shocked. <laughs> so they anticipated that, you know, this, you know, the, the sacrifice had to be made. And in doing so, you know, they hid the scrolls and they never get credit for it. Yeah, because uh, the isn't the official story that everybody just committed suicide, like Jim Jones, or they drank Kool Aid or something, they killed each other. They martyred by sword, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was definitely the end of history. And the Dead Sea Scrolls that we find at Qumran, uh, just so the audience can get a little refresher for those that might not know, you've got what nine hundred and thirty scrolls. Uh, And uh, this is a huge cache. I mean, so basically, as we see it, they saw, could we say it's a mixture of scrolls that the scenes thought were important, plus scrolls that the general priesthood in Jerusalem thought it was important. Correct. And they just became the caretakers of this. Correct. And the the caves closest to the the Masada are the, the most important. Mm. to the scene. So the copper scrolls, for example, are very hidden right there. And there's about 12, 13 caves, and they found a new one last year. So there's more caves, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more. And you have quite a variety. You've got, uh, let's see, you you have definitely have them listed in your book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah. You've got Genesis, Psalms, the Book of Lachme or Lamech, uh, the book of Enoch. So this is quite a variety. And uh, a lot of this, a lot of these texts did sort of give uh, credence to a lot of Old Testament writings. I mean, they were pretty much matched pretty well. I know, uh, I think in uh, 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've got Goliath not at seven feet tall, but at six foot tall, which would make him still very tall in those days, a giant. But uh, it's quite a variety, isn't it? It is. And a lot of them, a lot of them are duplicates what the Pharisees had. But, for example, the book, the book of, of Enoch um, was not widely used by the Pharisee temple community. Um, they just didn't believe any of the esoteric things. So, but them finding um, this cachet is just, uh, just you know, won't happen twice. You know, it's just amazing. And uh, it's preserved, isn't it, because of the weather? That's what really gave a break that this thing was preserved for, you know, a good almost 2,000 years. Most of them were in this like a leather wrapping and then put it inside of a uh, vessel. I have one here, a uh, just a cylinder, a clay cylinder, and then conceal, and then and then you know just capped, and then but it was never really uh, you know locked down or anything. So we're kind of very very lucky that they still survived. And of these scrolls, there were just again just to clarify with the audience, there were copies of sacred writings but there were other writings about what the Essenes or the Qumran community believed in we think this will happen this and that yeah the three types so the what the Pharisees had within their within their writings there was the new stuff like the the esoteric stuff the the copper scrolls the astrology um, those type of things and then lastly how the community the sound community, the, the scene community uh, functioned. And that's very interesting also. One author, one author that's done a really good job on this, his name is, um, ah, yes, Geza Vermes, G-E-Z-A Vermes, V-E-R-M-E-S. He's got the complete breakdown of the Dead Sea Scrolls that for your listeners, that's the one to look for. Uh, on Amazon. And I use that as my basis for my research. So it's pretty easy to follow that. Hmm, very cool. And what would a more or less uh, an Essene community look like? You talked about Masada and the steps. I'm assuming what else? They were vegetarian. Mostly they vegetarian. They were stargazers. What else? How would the community? Were, it, was all, it wasn't all male, right? They could have. They were mostly male. They were mostly age, age 40 and above. They left all the material uh, worth behind. If they had any material value when they joined the Brotherhood, they gave it to the Brotherhood. Uh, when If they were persons of influence and they joined the Brotherhood, they were assigned a servant every day to do their daily duties because every brother was assigned a specific duty. And if they didn't do it themselves, the servant would have to do that for them. Um, it, you know, wealth matters in anything, just like, with with the Essenes. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to study on a specific uh, Leviticus or the scroll, the copper scrolls or astrology, uh, you'd have to prove yourself to, to join that, but they, they could potentially get to do that. But I just find it interesting. They were just so well organized and um, took care of themselves, mostly vegetarian. And again, as I mentioned, they bathed every day and had a very nice kind of life, you know. Yeah, like you said, a very nice hippie commune. 
Yes. You could uh, talk to God and their dream interpretation and so forth. Do you know how that would work? I mean, obviously, in the Old Testament, dreaming happens a lot. God appears to a lot of figures like uh, Daniel and I believe Jacob in dreams. So they thought this is Yahweh could come to them or an angel could come to them and bring them revelations through dreams. And that's a lot of times they could influence, you know, a, a, a scroll's writing. And their, the main book, the, the influence was the book of Daniel. And um, how, you know, Daniel dream is something and make the application apply in real life. Um, you know, he called out Noah, for example, for the, the expectation of Noah to appear for the deluge or the big flood. And um, that came from a dream. So, you know, things like that happen. So they, they just had this incredible skill to, to, um, to do that. And, you know, and be straight up with you, when I do some of your writings, it has to come to you at different, different angles. I mean, if I can't figure it out, I have to think about it and pray about it. And many times I'll get an answer. And then if I go do my research and I feel supported by my research, you know, I'll write about it. Oh, yeah, I would certainly agree. That's where inspiration comes. And it's a pity that most religions uh, throughout time and afterwards abandon this wonderful place that we spend so much time at where our unconscious and our soul comes alive and our ego kind of relaxes and the spirits can come in and communicate with our maybe even our higher selves. So this makes perfect sense to me. And uh, Vance, uh, what do you think? Or do you have a question for Anthony? Yeah, I do. Uh, Anthony, uh, uh, is there anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls that could be interpreted as referring to Jesus, uh, you know, directly or even indirectly? I think the, it actually really is, is, is directly in the sense that when John the Baptist um, asked, he was in jail, and he uh, he heard that there was a new Messiah in the land, and he sent a message to this new Messiah, and they asked him, who are you? His answer was, um, he said, the blind receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead will rise, the good news. And that told John that, you know, this new Messiah was in the scene. And that's as direct a link as you'll ever find and locate. And the second thing was that the way Jesus led his life, it was basically patterned after the Essenes. Okay, so it's um, kind of by inference um, from what we know in the New Testament. Correct. Yeah. And I was also wondering in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, um, are there any uh, pieces of literature represented in the scrolls that are the oldest copies of known literature? Like, wow, this is the oldest copy we have of this particular document. There are because, for example, uh, I think it was a book of Deuteronomy. The the oldest copy they had prior to that was found in the 6th century. So some of the the books they found in the caves were, uh, you know, written before uh, one year BC, and after that, you know, they had never been located until after the, uh, you know, sixth century. So yeah, the 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 original. These are some of the most original original works you'll ever find. So it's incredibly impressive. 
what's an example of a big surprise you know that uh, that they found in the dead sea scrolls what what did they do to this document you know assuming the dead sea scroll was the original one or close closer to the original and somebody redacted it or edited it what what, what can you think of well, telling us all the books that that the Pharisees used were within were within the caves there's nothing there wasn't uh, so much that they didn't that they had it that weren't in the scrolls but what they for example the book of uh the book of enoch that wasn't saved in the entire entirely after they found the book of enoch in um after they found the book of enoch within the caves you know you had uh, let me see what i have here You've got, yeah, you've got the dreams, the watchers, the uh, time travelers, you know, stuff like that you would never find within the Pharisees writing, Pharisee writing because they didn't believe in that kind of stuff. So that stuff to me is the most impressive thing because um, that gave uh, roots to Christianity. And that's why it's so incredibly important. Yeah, that is for sure. The influence is there. I mean, Enoch, as you said, already has a, the foundation for what b would be later Christian, early Christian belief system, uh, sort of a hell, the battle at the end of time, uh, this, uh, the spiritual beings that can save others. It was all there. And it's fascinating. You just mentioned time travel and you write in your book, Anthony, that Uriel is an angel that can travel in time and link stories of the past and the present. Correct. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Uriel was the, was the primary time travel used by um, that particular writer. And um, angels were considered a no-no before that to even talk about it or think about that. Um, when I got my ex's playbook, the Ermitaño was the time traveler. I didn't know where it came from. Uh, when I saw Uriel, I realized the match there. And what Uriel, what Uriel demonstrates is that, this is what's really interesting, the angels flying into heaven have a dual meaning to a scenes. It could be not only the angel, but humans traveling into heaven. So they have dual meaning. And the reason that's important uh, for, I noticed within Catholicism is that, you know, they, they, they focus on saints going into heavens. And that's kind of, to me, what, what they're trying to get to there is that, that the, the humans becoming angels and traveling. So, you know, I think that's how the, the scenes looked at it, you know, it was beyond just an angel figure. It was really more of a human figure becoming these angels and, and, and supporting different causes. The portal of light was a heaven, kind of an orifice, a round circle that you can go in and out this portal, and that was time travel. 
And they're doing this in, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And, um, and today we're dealing with wormholes and those type of things now. And they're, they're that far ahead. So what did they really know? Yeah, that is true. A lot has been lost. And it's, uh, uh, have you ever thought why the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, rejected the book of Enoch? I know even in early Christianity, for a while, some of the, you know, church fathers in the second century were fine with the book of Enoch, but then they sort of uh, got rid of it. And it, you know, Jesus quotes it, obviously, a few times in the New Testament, and you find it in the the epistle of Jude towards the end of the Bible. But uh, why do you think uh, the book of Enoch never really got that prominent except for the scenes and other groups? I guess is the simple answer is just too esoteric, too mystic. It, it doesn't help the guy in the pews or anybody else. You know, people take off on it and uh, a lot of times they don't have the maturity to understand how it's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes very philosophical or opinion oriented. So I think they probably liked something they could handle. The other things, you know, the, the, the at that time, they're only Pharisees. You know, they, they, you know, if there's a habit for them, they sometimes you can over analyze, overstudy these philosoph- these philosophies, and it it loses its, it loses its, its real meaning. And so, you know, trying to get a handle on something you can't define or control i don't think that felt comfortable with with the rabbis yeah again there's always exoteric and esoteric in these things and the qumran commuting these scenes just did they take the idea of spiritual evil that there was fallen angels and uh angelic half-breeds as seriously as whoever were the forces behind the book of Enoch or the Gnostic gospels, or do they simply see the world was fine and the real evil was the Romans and other empires? Or how do you think they saw their cosmology or how the universe was structured? I think they probably viewed evil at, you know, as, you know, maybe a giant or maybe an evil angel that has fallen and they had to deal with that. Um, so, you know, just like I think religion has that that thing about it where you know you're always looking for the most negative thing that could possibly happen and and somebody does something, you say, Well, they're possessed by an evil and uh, they look like a big giant, you know. So I think even in those days there was a concern about, you know, what um, who can be evil. Yeah, always trying to explain what could be evil, because uh if you wanna just uh pin it all on God, sometimes that doesn't look good, right? No, no. It's like, hey, what's going on, big guy? What's up with this universe? <laughs> and Paul, too. I mean, exorcisms. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I mean, Paul, I mean, obviously Paul talks about archons, powers and principalities, the God of this world. So Paul seems to have uh, taken this vibe of the book of Enoch, too. It was, it was in the air in those days. It was, it was probably... Uh, you don't you think, Anthony? It was probably a common thing to see that there was these dark spirits or loosened angels on the world. You know, back then there was a lot of um, illnesses, mm-hmm. um, lepers, um, different skin illnesses. 
had a lot to do with cleansiness back then. But yeah, they always wondered where that evilness came from, make this kind of person sick. And I'm sure they signed a name to it. Uh, you know, a lot of in northern New Mexico, northern New Mexico, they do the kind of thing to this day. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a funny thing. Um, what do they do in northern New Mexico? Well, let's say if there's a a, a particular illness, uh-huh. they they say, well, that person's got what they call mal ojo, mal ojo, eye. yes, <laughs> and they yeah. go, well, where does that come from? Well, I'm like, my probably comes from the spiritual writings from back in the day and. You know, that kind of stuff, you know, people kind of believe in. So it does happen. Yeah, it still happens across the world, very much so. So, yeah, awesome. So we great uh, exposition on the Dead Sea Scrolls and couching about these scenes. And, again, the story ends, as we all know. The Romans came, destroyed the Second Temple, wiped out a huge part of the population. And later on, it would be with... Uh, Hadrian, it would even get even worse in the middle of the second century when Hadrian just decided to kick all the Jews out of Palestine. And that was pretty much, and uh, the, the Jews from Judea became homeless for a long time. So this is lost forever, or it seems to have been lost. This knowledge is lost for a long time. And then it's discovered in 1947. Before we go, how this maybe fulfills prophecies, Anthony? What? How was? How was this uh, treasure of ancient wisdom found? It was found by ox by accident. Some uh, a Bedouin young boy, about 13, 14, kicked a ball into a cave, and the sound it made reverberated with with some some pottery breaking or cracking. And when he went in there, they found this and he saw some paper wrapped in wrapped up. He showed one of his elders and that elders and that was the start of it. And this became uh, one thing led to another. They brought it out and then the researchers and scholars, archaeologists said this is real. This is important. Is initially sold to a couple of the scrolls. The important ones were sold to some private investors. Mm. I'm not sure who owns them now. And um, from there, they realized that this is legit, legitimate stuff. So they started searching for more uh, caves and scrolls, and they found more. And all of a sudden, it it took off from there. Yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the church, the Catholic Church, was very interested. So were many Protestants. Uh, Obviously, and people from uh, the new country of Israel were interested. Because, although, again, the narrative wasn't how they wanted. They they thought they'd open it and it'd be just like the four gospels and yada yada yada. And then there was the issue. Have you heard of the issue of uh, John Allegro and the sacred mushroom? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, that's another one of the first scholars to. Um, to be appointed, he was the only non-Catholic scholar, John Allegro. He started researching the Dead Sea Scrolls and got dug deeper in the Bible, and he came to this theory that Jesus was a mushroom, that these ancients were a mushroom cult, and it was all psychedelic. So it kind of derailed the whole thing. So it's, Yeah, if you run into it, you'll see it, but that was, again, what sort of uh, derailed it. But I'm sure, again... I wouldn't, would you be surprised if these, uh, again, ancient hippies were using psychedelics of some sort? I'm sure they were trying to change, alter their state of consciousness any way they could. 
It wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me. That's uh, the use of plants was was primary mm-hmm. for healing purposes and medicinal purposes. So yes, un poquito de mota para ver a Dios. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So now, so we have the idea of uh, the scrolls are discovered, and now we are here in the 21st century. Uh, I guess the question asking you and your work with the, the Ladinos is, why do you think that what they were talking about prophesies the coming of the next Messiah in this 21st century? As I mentioned you, it starts with the ages, the constellation ages. So we just completed the age of Pisces, the fish. And now we're going to the age of Aquarius, who is the woman with the with the uh, bucket of water. So I do, with that belief, I accept that the new Messiah is going to be coming. Now, what happened in Ladinos, because there was repressed by the Christians with, within the Moradas and the Hermandad, that they prayed for their Messiah to save them. And those are passive prayers. And uh, I believe that the Creator listens to passive prayers of of His repressed. His Jewish people have been repressed, and the arrival of the document to me of the Exodus play in 2011. I was asked to finish it by the age by the year of 2012, which was the beginning of the age of Aquarius. Further tells me that you know, the new Messiah is coming because the prayers from the oppressed Jews are going to request their own Messiah is going to be a Jewish Messiah. I don't know if it's going to be a man or a woman, but that time is now. And at the same time, for a Messiah, there must be a mother who do you think will be the next Mary, the mother of God, as well as, as we know it in Catholicism? Well, inside that excess play, when when it was informed me to inform for me to free out something, they put the sentence out of the blue saying, How is she to be treated? Treated. The first time I read that, I was like, who's supposed to be treated? But I realized they're referring to the mother of the Messiah. And that's where it gets interesting because, you know, when Mary, Mother Mary, was around, uh, we had um, the emperor the, the, the pursuing Mary and Joseph and trying to find them and then later put to death children aged un, under age two. And the question began, you know, how is, is this new mother going to be treated? And um, I don't know if it's going to be any different. Uh, I don't know exactly when the new mother will arrive. I don't know how the birth is going to happen. But I do believe the Jews are going to get their own Messiah. They're going to get their own Kumbaya. They're going to get their own excitement about having this happen to them. And it's their turn. And it's their time. So that's why it's very important. Are there any idea where she might appear or what part of the world? Well, one clue I have is that is the 33rd parallel. Important things happen at the 33rd parallel. 
Um, so I'm going to make the assumption I write in the book that the 33 parallel, you know, in Israel, in Judea, would be a likely area. I don't know when, though. I don't know if it's going to be miraculous. I don't know if it's going to be how it's going to happen, but it will be an earthborn child. And you talked about, obviously, King Herod uh, chasing Mary and Joseph, as in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus, they have to take the child to Egypt to hide him for a while. And Herod obviously had some, I don't know if his dream or some prophecies or magicians, I already forgot what, but he kind of knew what was going on in the Gospel of Matthew who is, you might say, the bad guys on the other side that might be worried about this Mary bringing forth a new child? Well, think about it. A hundred years from now, the most powerful player is going to be artificial intelligence. And those people who control that, who I'm going to call the corporate elite, they control the information, they control the technology. Um, It's not a very big group. But they're going to be very concerned about this new Messiah giving uh, backbone and hope to people that will counter them because they're basically being AI and uh, corporately, they're not believers. So I call them non-believers. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be very curious to see this new Messiah is considered that a threat. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're going to be pursuing this child. Yeah, I think in one part of your book, you even mentioned that they may use some sort of uh, mass-forced abortion to eliminate any potential messiahs. Forget just killing young people. <laughs> just Well, they have the ability to do the what they call the uh, after-pregnancy pill. I mean, if they oh, yeah. wanted to apply that to a particular area or a particular region for six, eight months, two years to all these women, you know, it can happen. They're going to have that kind of strength. We are at the end. So uh, could you, uh, I will have this on the show notes as always listeners, but could you tell the audience where they can find out more about you and also what books, other books you've written and uh, where they can find all these books? Well, I'm uh, currently on Amazon with all my books. This first book, I'm going to give you the website. It's uh, www.artificialintelligence.com and newmessiah.com. And uh, I have a little blurb blurb about the book, but I would appreciate if you bought the book because I think it's interesting. And I'm one one of those authors that if you read something you don't understand or want further detail, I'll uh, email you back. My email address is xxicent at aol.com. This first book, this last book is uh, the third book I've written on the topic, the first one was the portal of light. The second, the shared life twin son, who people have mentioned about the Kabbalah from Spain and those kind of influences is in that book. And the two other books I've done are what I call indigenous books. Uh, Watiti, the Native American slave, uh, slave. And, uh, lastly, the word decoder. So, um, I've been writing about 10 years now. So I hope you like, uh, my genres and support uh, the indie authors. Awesome. You heard it here. And yes, as I often say in the show, support alternative media. 
don't give money to the corporate media and all those uh, generalized uh, so-called artists because they all work for the, well, for the corporate elite. They're all part for our brainwashing and it is us in the edges of town, if you would, in the bardos and the niches who are really trying to mine for that information to set us free or those who wish to be free to awaken. But yeah, this has been a very stimulating conversation. And as I mentioned, we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this uh, journey. Oh, it's been fun. A lot to look forward to, I guess, right? Yes, the fun has only begun. And Anthony, we really appreciate you coming on Aeon Bide and giving us your time and your insights based on your book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah. Thank you for coming on and good luck with all your projects. Thank you, both you and Vance. Thank you much. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview in our second part, we'll continue discussing the prophecy of this new messiah, but we'll finally get into the coming threat of singularity and AI, and how it plays into the cosmic drama of these scenes. I mean, how will AI actually control us? How will this messiah fight AI and the butt slaves of the Archons? Anthony will share, too, on how the pandemic plays into the brave new world coming our way. And he'll advise on how we can fight the AI and be on the side of the forces of light. Anthony will provide some of his ideas on the Kabbalah and Merkava Judaism, as well as Gnosticism. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full scroll. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Or you can now subscribe to the easy-to-use private RSS feed from Red Circle, found in the show notes. For less than $5 per month, and you'll get the last 200 shows in the podcast provider of your choice. And it takes Stripe, since many of you hate Patreon or PayPal. No matter where you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels include full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Finding Hermes is going strong, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, 
become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. Lastly, I am now on Odyssey and Rockfin, moving away from larger digital domains and going to places that don't censor and offer crypto. Check me out there. Woo! I know that's a lot, but I gotta stay spread out as the Archons are always there to cancel me. If you need help with all of these choices, uh, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.